Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we ask when will action resume in the English Premier League as fans around Africa are missing the game so much. Also, Stuart takes a look at the best African players in the Premier League this season. And we go into our archive to a 2017 interview with Liberia legend James Deber, who played alongside George Weir. Deborah talks about Liberia's first ever qualification to the Africa Cup of Nations back in 1996. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the feelings, that euphoria, you know. It, it, it was it was indescribable. I cannot tell you how we felt. That's coming up later, but let's start with European football, as I'm sure most of us are really missing the action and wondering when it might restart. Now, the Spanish La Liga says maybe at the end of next month, though I'm not sure if that will happen as the coronavirus situation is very bad there right now. Some German Bundesliga clubs have begun training in small groups. We wait for more news from England, where the intention is to finish the season somehow, but we don't know when. Belgium have called off their league. That was announced last week. And the UEFA Champions League and Europa League could be abandoned if coronavirus restrictions remain in place into September. That was said recently by UEFA President Alexander Seferin. But the cost of calling off the Premier League and the Champions League would be so high. Global consultancy firm KPMG have predicted that the big five leagues in England, Spain, Germany, France and Italy would face a staggering 4.35 billion US dollar loss from match day revenue plus broadcasting and sponsorship revenues if the remaining games are not completed, Stuart. Steve, before talking about football, let me give you some context. Europe is in the grip of a pandemic. On Wednesday this week, 900 people in England died of coronavirus, bringing our total to 7,000. France has seen more than 10,000, Spain 14,000, and Italy more than 17,000 die. And England is estimated to be one or two weeks away from reaching a peak. So there's a real sense that questions of when football return are just not quite as important as they used to be. As you say, there's a lot of ideas and rumours going around with very little concrete information. The Premier League and the Football Association do seem determined to finish the league programme. And there's even talk of playing two or three games a week with no spectators and with players isolated from their families in hotels for perhaps up to six weeks. But whatever, I just cannot see any of that happening before June or possibly July. I think there are two reasons why the football authorities in England are reluctant to call the season off. And the first one is money. Television income amounts to $3.6 billion each year, or an average of $180 million per club. And if the season were to finish now, with a quarter of the game still to play, then television, I think, would probably ask for a quarter of the money back. And that's about $40 million per club. Then there's match day income, which varies from club to club. But at the top end of the spectrum, if Manchester United are unable to play their five remaining home games with spectators in the stadium, they would stand to lose $20 million. The second reason is, I think, the football authorities fear being sued by some clubs. Let's say the season finishes now. No champions, no clubs relegated, no clubs promoted. 
Suddenly Leeds United and West Bromwich Albion, who've dominated the championship and expected to be in the Premier League with $50 million minimum income, would they not think of suing the Premier League for damages that they were not promoted? The figure that you quoted, Steve, $4 billion, the cost of cancelling the five big leagues in Europe, is certainly realistic. But given the figures I've just quoted of around $1 billion for the Premier League alone, I wonder if that figure might actually be an underestimate. And finally, the other question that has to be faced is, assuming the Premier League is finished, but several months later than usual, what are the implications for next season? If next season starts late, will it finish late, leaving very little preparation time for the European Championship, summer 2021? Or do we reduce the number of league games to finish the season on time? But there again, if you reduce the number of games, doesn't that have implication for television revenue? There are really no clear or easy solutions to this terrible problem. Well, so many questions. And there's been controversy in England over clubs deciding to furlough staff. Furlough meaning to lay people off work temporarily and to take advantage of the UK's coronavirus scheme where people who lose their jobs will be paid 80% by government for three months, up to $3,000 a month. Liverpool especially were criticised, Stuart. Yes, when Liverpool announced that they were going to take advantage of the coronavirus job retention scheme that you mentioned and put 200 non-playing staff on leave, there was an outcry with people saying, well, why should the football club, which declared profits last year of $50 million, need to do that? They were criticised by supporters groups and by former players like Jamie Carragher. And the club listened, backed down and apologised saying they had come to the wrong conclusion and they would continue to pay all their staff. Now, in the last week or two, we've seen Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola and several other managers announcing that they were taking a pay cut. But as far as I'm aware, at this point, all players are still being paid in full. And I understand that the players in negotiations with clubs are reluctant to take a drop in salary because, first of all, they're not sure what would happen to the money and also are not convinced that clubs of the strength of Liverpool and Manchester United are really in financial difficulty because they've missed one or two games. But on the other hand, Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson has reportedly been speaking to the captains of all the other Premier League clubs with a view to asking players to make a voluntary contribution to help medical needs in the country at the moment. Great gestures. Thanks, Stuart. And we've heard that Southampton have become the first Premier League club to announce that players will defer part of their salaries, along with manager Ralph Hassenhuttle and his staff, as well as the board of directors. That's up until June. Now, as the coronavirus pandemic continues, followers of Jesus are marking Easter this Sunday where they celebrate his resurrection. This comes at a time where most places of worship are closed around the world, the same way that almost all sport gatherings are not happening globally too. It's a difficult time, but some people are realising that man is not as powerful as maybe we thought, as life has changed for most of us in a short space of time. Russ Bravo is a journalist in the UK. He's a passionate supporter of Premier League club Brighton. Now, Russ, Easter is a time of hope, but there's a lot of frustration and disappointment for so many people right now. It's strange times for everyone at the moment, isn't it, Steve? Particularly as a football fan. 
About now we're normally caught up in all the end of season excitement, the promotion race, title battles, relegation fights, the latter stages of cup competitions, agonising over the league tables, filling in the online predictors. Instead, we're all shut in. The players are uploading keepy-uppy clips to Twitter or following the fitness coaches' training routines, fans watching old highlight reels or spending hours playing FIFA. I've been a Brighton & Hove Albion fan for decades and it's been amazing to see us playing in the Premier League for the last few seasons. Yes, we've battled relegation and it's been a roller coaster ride. Who knows if we'll survive when this season finally concludes, but I wouldn't have it any other way. One of our rising African stars this season has been tenacious midfielder Yves Bissouma, a Mali international. His driving runs have been exciting to watch and he's beginning to develop into a thrilling talent. Currently out on loan are the mercurial South African Percy Tau at Club Bruges in Belgium. Looks like they're going to win the title by default. And then there's Nigerian international Leon Balogun, who's been earning rave reviews for his assured defending at Wigan Athletic in the Championship. Also, until recently, we had Cameroon fullback Gaten Bong, who's now part of Nottingham Forest's promotion push. I'm sad we can't sing his song anymore. One bong, we've only got one bong, we've only got one bong, we've only got one bong. It's a strange time when your routine is halted and normal life is just suspended. So it'd be easy to become disillusioned and fearful when our work is under threat and the sports we love are no longer there as a passion we love and an outlet for the frustrations of everyday life. Yet for me, as a committed Christian, there is hope. We're in the midst now of the greatest festival in the Christian church's calendar, Easter. It's a time when we remember the pain and anguish of the death of Jesus on Good Friday, an innocent man crucified among common criminals. At that point, his disciples were in the depths of despair. To coin a phrase, they thought it was all over. But it wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus was alive, and the history of the human race began an amazing new chapter. The good news of the resurrection offers hope of a fresh start, forgiveness for the past, and a future that will never see us separated from God's love. Football will be back. It may be different, but as humans we're resourceful and creative and we will find a way. My team almost went out of business more than 20 years ago, with no ground and 45 minutes from being relegated out of the Football League. Now we're in the Premier League in an amazing stadium and a bigger support base than ever before. There's always hope, and for Christians, Easter really is the festival of hope. And the beautiful game will delight us once again. Hope at a time where there's so much despair in the world right now. Thanks, Russ. That's Russ Bravo, a journalist in the UK and a big supporter of Premier League club Brighton. And if you'd like to know more about the hope that Jesus offers, you can send us a private message on Facebook or get in touch on our WhatsApp number. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. And on our website, there's a Finding Faith page in the About Us section. That's on our website, planetsport.tv. And whatever faith you may be from, or indeed if you have none, we wish you and your family a happy Easter. 
Now, while we're all affected by the coronavirus in some way and life has changed for most of us and is challenging for many right now, we're making sure that Planet Sport Football Africa gives you plenty of entertainment every week to lift your spirits. We're going into our archive to give you some of our most memorable moments as a team. Now, in 2017, Liberia came here to Harare to play Zimbabwe in a 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier. The Lone Star were coached at that time by James Deber, a real Liberian legend. Deba is Liberia's most capped player. He played alongside George Weir in the best ever Liberia team that made it to the Nations Cup in 1996 and in 2002. Liberia's only two appearances so far. I asked Deba about those playing days. It was marvellous. I mean, playing with George Weir, it was exceptional. You know, extremely gifted individual. I mean, hospitable. I mean, down to earth kind of person, a huge sense of humor. I mean, it was very easy to play with him. And other players like the likes of Kevin Sebwe, Joe Namwe, Zizi Roberts and others. I mean, we had a very good team. So the cohesion was there. The reason being that that particular institution took approximately 16 years to build. A lot of people don't, you know, don't understand that. The formation of that organization started in 1986 when a group of young people went to Brazil, a six-month training to Brazil. We came back from Brazil, it took us 10 years after Brazil to qualify for our first Afghan competition, 1996, in South Africa. And after that, it took another six years, 2002, to qualify for our second, which were in uh, 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 Mali. So you see, 16 years of cohesion. It's hard work and dedication. You see, success does not come overnight. You have to work for it. That's why I'm trying to infuse in my player you know, tell them to keep working harder. You know, you, there's no success with our hard work. What were you doing in Brazil where you were laying that foundation? Yeah, we went for a training program, six months training program. In Rio de Janeiro, we played a lot of friendly, uh, international friendly. Uh, it helped us a lot. It helped us. That was a development process. That was a development, you know, that's how we started. Some were 16, some were 15 years old. Yeah, we were very young, very young. And that first ever Nations Cup qualification in 1996, yeah. how was it for the nation? Oh, it was good. It was our first Afghan qualification. I mean, it, it, was, it was good. And we had the first opportunity to qualify. I mean, it was a big deal in Liberia. I mean, we felt we have arrived, you know, just, just qualifying. <laughs> it was a big deal. Yeah, we experienced it here in Zimbabwe. That was 2004 uh, here. And uh, yeah. for the nation, it was just so special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the feelings, that euphoria, you know, it, it, was, it was undescribable. I cannot tell you how we felt. You also played uh, 2002 Nations Cup, but you yeah. very nearly qualified for the World Cup yeah. in 2002, missing out just by yeah, a single, point, single to, point to Nigeria. Two times, yeah. Two times we came close. 1990, we fell to Egypt. We were on the verge of qualification, then we blew it, <laughs> I would say. I think it's two games to go in that 2002 campaign. Yeah. You were Ghana on top. Ghana and Sierra Leone, we were on top. Then uh, we fell short the game against Ghana at home. We lost two goals to one. Yeah, that was the turning point. I mean... A lot, every, the entire population were devastated because that would have been a glorious opportunity for the players and most especially for George Weir at the time because he had just won the European Football of the Year. He was on the verge of climaxing his career. That would have been a very good, you know, unfortunately. <laughs> he didn't, you know. 
That's James Deber, Liberia's most capped player ever. I was speaking to him back in 2017. And, well, Ida, you'd think that Liberia might have achieved more over the years than just those two Nations Cup appearances. Well, when you think about it, Steve, considering all the issues that Liberia has faced in the last couple of decades, it's actually not too surprising. I mean, the civil war ravaged the country, infrastructure and all, and as a result, I don't think that the development of sport was really ever a priority. Now, I've always been of the opinion that it says quite a bit that George Ware's sons have had practically nothing to do with football in in Liberia. Uh, I mean, both his sons have played uh, nationally for the United States and uh, both of them have plied their trade on club level in France. And I think that that speaks loads. However, with George Ware, I mean, people definitely expected more talent to come from Liberia. He was absolutely amazing. You look at Deba, and yes, he did also make it to Europe, played in France, but it was never quite to the levels of George Ware. I mean only African player to win the Ballon d'Or. But it seemed more and more to be a case of, you know, individual talent here and there, as opposed to, say, on a wholesale capacity, you know, if you will, um, as you've seen in countries that are regulars at the Africa Cup of Nations, you know, talking about the likes of Nigeria, for example. Uh, But with that said, Liberia, unfortunately for them, will have to wait a bit longer, Steve, to play at the Nations Cup. They were bundled out of the 2021 qualifiers quite early on in the preliminaries. So hopefully they will make it for the next one. Yeah, sure. And it was interesting to hear how that great Liberia team with James Deber and George Weir that made it to the Nations Cup in 1996 did so after 10 years playing together. We don't seem to have this patient approach these days in many countries. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's all about instant results nowadays, you know, and if not achieved quickly, then the structures are changed up, Steve often at the drop of a hat and leaving things much worse than before. And, you know, as Debe says, it was decades in the making for their team because even before the 10 years it took them to make it to their first Africa Cup of Nations, well, they'd known each other for six prior to that. So one can imagine that this was probably through playing together in the youth ranks, you know, different age grades, so that by the time these players were playing at senior level, well, they were doing so as a solid unit who understood one another, there was a proper natural chemistry, natural fluidity. And I think that this is a great example, Steve, as to why the development of age-grade football, and especially here in Africa, should be taken much more seriously than it currently is. Uh, Another thing Deba has mentioned that was quite interesting um, is the likes of uh, Kelvin Sebwe. Now, Subway played in mid and an interesting tidbit, Steve, is Subway's elder brother also happened to play in the national team, but as a defender. Just how much of a unit these players were. I mean, some of them were such a unit that they were practically and actually family. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thanks, Ida. Do stay safe there in Nairobi. This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA. 
Well, now we turn to social media. And on last week's show, we asked, how are the stadiums in your country? We heard from South Africa legend Mark Fish, who's been part of a CAF team that's been inspecting stadiums ahead of the 2022 FIFA World Cup qualifiers. And now Fish said that better stadiums in Africa will produce better football. So we asked, do you agree? And how are the stadiums where you are? We've had a great response as seven different countries across the continent represented here. We'll start today with Bizwek and Jaqua, who's in Malawi. I do agree with Mark Fish, says Bizwek. Countries with good stadiums have always proved to have a higher ranking on the FIFA table. My country, Malawi, has only two international standard stadiums. This is a big challenge to our local football. We have bad football facilities, so no wonder that in my country football is not up there, says Bizwek. Francisco Dodoma is also in Malawi. Definitely good stadiums allow the game to flow, says Francisco. Just like any event, football requires a good ambience. So if stadiums are in bad shape, you can't expect a magnificent display from the players. Here in Malawi, stadiums are not in a good condition. In fact, they're almost a death trap to players and spectators alike, and only a few can be recommended. Let's get a view from Kenya now, from Tebi Otieno. Kenya has been upgrading some stadiums recently, says Tebi. I'm just not sure which month the completion was set, but I believe everything has been suspended due to the current COVID-19 pandemic. On the other hand, I do agree that better performances are achieved through a country having better stadiums, says Tebi. Frida Vihenda Okachi paints a similar picture from Kenya. Our government is trying to develop the stadiums both on national and county level. But for me, we only have four stadiums that can produce better football. One of them is the Kasarani Stadium that meets the requirements. The rest of the venues are not in good condition and need a lot of work if they are to host matches against teams from other countries, says Frida. Yes, we heard uh, that from Ida on the show last week. Abdullahi Nying is in the Gambia. Well, here our stadiums are not really up to standard. That really affects the football here, says Abdullahi. And Uxis Sis, also in the Gambia, agrees, saying, We have one main stadium used for both football and athletics. This has been there for many years, says Uxis. We need another bigger stadium. The capacity is 45,000, and that's not enough. The recent games we had with Algeria, Guinea and Togo brought a lot of Gambians to the stadium, so it was full to capacity and some could not enter the stadium, even though they'd already bought their tickets. CAF should help the African countries have at least two main stadiums, says Uxis. Now, another view from the Gambia comes from Ronald B. Yanate. I agree with Mark Fish because football needs to be played on very good pitches to produce the best results, says Ronald. Obina in Nigeria is able to report on a more encouraging situation in his country. The stadia in my country, Nigeria, are getting better, says Obina, with state governments helping out in that regard. Dominic Ompile and Botswana also has a positive view. Generally, we have better stadiums here, says Dominic. We have four, and good investment leads to better teams. And let's go to Ghana now and hear from Daniel. Yes, it's very true what Mark Fish says, says Daniel. It's like travelling with a flat tyre. It won't be possible. Africa lacks the maintenance culture in all of our national structures. We mostly build them with inferior materials and later pay the price. I believe it's a bad attitude which we should desist from as leaders and followers. In Ghana, our stadiums are not up to international standard. They're in a deplorable state, says Daniel. Thanks for that. Yes, I remember those stadiums in Ghana looked really good for the 2008 Africa Cup of Nations, but uh, that was 12 years ago. I know that they have deteriorated now. 
Mande Wab Francis is in Uganda. We have more than 70 playing grounds with five leagues here in Uganda, says Mande. But we have only four good stadiums and three of those have artificial pitches. One is for national duty, but the others are just bare soil. We can't produce good players because they're easily affected by injuries due to the poor playing surface and the lack of good medical facilities, says Mande. Thanks very much for all of those comments. Well, this week on social media, we're asking, is scrapping the English Premier League season the best thing to do? The Premier League remains suspended because of the coronavirus pandemic, with no date as yet for the resumption of games, and with Liverpool just two wins away from becoming champions. Now, we heard earlier from Stuart that the Premier League could lose easily $1 billion, maybe more, if the season cannot finish. There's a possibility of lawsuits if it doesn't reach a conclusion as well. But perhaps are some saying scrapping the season and starting a new one later this year will be the best thing to do. What do you think? Should the season continue? Should it just be called off? You can go to our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, and post a comment there, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Now, while there's no action in the Premier League right now, we're going to be looking back at the season so far with Stuart over the next few weeks. And today, Stuart focuses on the African players who've been outstanding so far this season. Well, let's give you some background first, Steve. A total of 31 African players have appeared in the English Premier League this season. 31 players from 14 different African countries. Five from Ivory Coast, four from Nigeria and Senegal, three from Ghana and Egypt, two from Morocco, Algeria and Mali, and one each from Cameroon, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, DR Congo, Guinea and Gabon. With regard to clubs, there were four Africans at Liverpool, Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, two at Everton, Newcastle, Leicester City, Manchester United, Southampton, Watford and Arsenal, and one each at West Ham, Brighton, Wolves, Tottenham and Manchester City, with only Chelsea, Sheffield United and Norwich City not having an African player this season. So I was wondering, to take to the next stage, how have they done? And I think there have been five players who have been absolutely outstanding. And where can you start this season except at Liverpool? And their twin strikers, Sergio Mane and Mo Salah, when the league was suspended, Liverpool had played 29 games and were 25 points ahead of Manchester City, due in no small measure to 14 goals each from these strikers. Now, some people look back to the 2017-18 season, Salah's first for Liverpool, when he scored 32 goals, and question his performance this season. But I've never been convinced by that. In that season, Sergio Mane only scored 10 goals, and now the partnership really has developed into a partnership of equals. And I think 28 goals between them in 29 games is outstanding in my book. Liverpool as a team have been brilliant, but those two strikers have turned close games heading for a draw into wins. Next on my list of outstanding players is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, with 17 goals in 26 games. And, you know, the Liverpool strikers have been scoring in a dominant Liverpool team. Arsenal have struggled this season, winning only 9 of 28 league games. They've only scored 40 goals compared to 66. So Aubameyang's 17 out of 40 is a pretty good achievement. And that 
despite also having to learn to play under a third different manager in his three seasons at Arsenal. So I think his has been an outstanding contribution by any standard. Crystal Palace were in 11th place when the season had its break and their Ghanaian striker Jordan Ayew having scored eight goals and that's eight out of the 26 that Palace scored, 26 not 66 like Liverpool. But what makes his goal so significant is that he scored the winning goal for Palace against Villa, Brighton, West Ham twice and Watford as well as scoring in both drawn games with Arsenal. So if you calculate that, that means his goals were worth 12 points to Palace. And in a season where Wilfred Zaha has only scored three goals, the outstanding scoring form of Ayu has been very necessary. My final nomination for outstanding is marvellous Nakamba from Zimbabwe. He had previously played in France, Netherlands and Belgium last season at Brugge in the Belgian League and to step up from the Belgian League to the Premier League is massive but Nakamba has made a great contribution getting into the first team, holding his own, starting 18 league games after taking his first month not surprisingly to adjust. He also helped Villa to reach the final of the League Cup and Villa are of course still in a relegation zone and have a fight on their hands to survive. But Nakamba, I think, has done enough to show that he has what it takes to cut it in the Premier League. Well, thanks, Stuart, and uh, I'd say we're hugely proud of marvellous Nakamba here in Zimbabwe, the fourth Zimbabwean to play in the Premier League after Bruce Grobola at Liverpool, Peter and Lovu with Coventry and Benjani with Manchester City. Well, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Wairinga in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening and do stay safe. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.